You are listening to the Real Faith Stories podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Robert, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It is an honor to have you on the program today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, we could probably talk for hours, literally, (laughs) about your story. But let's start with how you came to faith and then go from there. Sure. Thanks. I got saved in my fourth attempt at going to college back in 1970. I was at school and I was out of control and just a wild kid and went to a world religious class and they made me do assignments. And I went to an assignment, which was I had to go to Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel under the tent back during the Jesus Freak days. And I went there to do an assignment and uh, I was 20 years old and I had been raised in church and didn't like it and left church on purpose to become a beach lifeguard so I wouldn't have to go to church on Sundays. Anyway, when this guy was preaching with long hair and a ponytail, I just heard something that resonated. I'd been told that I didn't know Jesus growing up in church. I only had religion and that I needed to know Jesus by some Jesus freaks on campus who were always open air preaching and calling out saying, hey, you need to get saved, you know, and I'd walk away. Anyway, when I went to this thing, I, I heard truth and I ran to the altar. And it was crazy because this girl who knew me on campus from partying, she would got saved. And when I went to the altar, I had my head bowed. I was, I was crying. I was just, oh God, this is a long haul. You know, this is a long life. This hard. Mm. I need help. Anyway, she's, I opened my eyes, there's this girl staring at me, and she goes, you? No way. You can't come up here. (laughs) I just looked at her like, leave me alone, you know? And she goes, not you. I mean, of all people, I'm here. (laughs) And that's, that was a holy wake up outing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's great. What shifted after that? You know, my heart shifted. I went from what I think I've wrestled with most of my life is selfishness self-centered selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. Maybe that's an entrepreneur in me, or maybe that's a type A in me. But I just, I felt like the Lord said, hey, you're just selfish. And I went back to my old church that I got a new pastor by this time. And I told the guy, I'm going to help you if you want help. Lo and behold, he gave me the junior high and the high school group. And it was dead. And I began to do non-church things with a bunch of kids. And pretty soon that thing grew and it grew a lot. (laughs) And we had fun. All the parents said, what are you doing? You know, and or having fun, we're not going to church. And so, but we read the Bible and we had to do scripture memory and stuff like that each week. But we had fun. That's when the Lord began to work on my life. Since I had dodged the, the Vietnam draft, the Lord was working on me to make all these things right. And so I had two friends who said, you know, you're really screwed up. You know, you've, you've been a mess and I've been to college four times. And they said, but if you do what we say, there's special ops ability inside you. I said, uh uh-uh. uh. They said, no, no, there is. You got talent. You're just lazy and unfocused, you don't know what you're doing, you drink too much. I, I said, I'm not drinking anymore. And they said, okay, do you want to be special ops? And I said, sure. And so the army thought I was 4F, meaning I was physically disabled, but I went over the Air Force and these guys called pararescuemen, which is the smallest of all the special ops communities, the Air Force is. And anyway, we're medical guys and they said, if you'll do what we say. And so for six months, I went dark. I just hit out and didn't see anybody and didn't socialize and didn't drink. Anyway, I just worked out and let these guys mentor me in pain and how to become pain tolerant, mental pain and emotional pain for what was going to happen to me when I went into like a Navy SEAL hell week. But 
with the Air Force side. So let me pause there, Robert. What were some of the things that they introduced to you to help you get mentally and physically prepared? My hands were bleeding from so many pull-ups. All the calluses and stuff were just keep pulling off. Pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, stair runs, in and out of the ocean, beach bear crawls, crabs, repeats, sprints, long-distance runs. They just said, how do you feel? I say, miserable. They say, great, let's go, let's keep it up. And so I got used to making miserable my friend. And today I coach special ops guys. I, I train Navy SEAL candidates and I train Air Force Special Warfare candidates. And I look at them, remember being their age and um, saying to them, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to make you miserable. Because if Al-Qaeda is chasing you, they're not going to ask you, do you feel good? Would you like a lemonade? Yeah. If they smell weakness on you, they're going to come after you. And the sad thing is, for me now, as a SEAL fit coach, paid coach, I'm the only non-Navy SEAL coach training these kids. It's sad because most of the Christian kids quit because they, they were not raised with the intensity that it's going to take to do this kind of stuff. Anyway, they worked me for six months, and then I went in. We had a class of 150, and I'm the only Christian kid around, you know. I go in saved and baptize the Holy Spirit. Our class graduated seven out of 150. Wow. And out of that seven, they made me team leader. And I looked around with the other six guys and said, we're all the good guys. I mean, we're all the, the, the studs, the specimens that we started with that we were sure were the greatest. And they had all quit. And the difference was is that if you read the book Grit, the PhD thesis by Duxworth, mm -hmm. it's about why some people quit. There's another book out called How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald, which is a PhD study on pain and why some people quit and some people don't quit. There's a difference in the chemical released in the brain from mental pain than physical pain, which we haven't talked about at all, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So we train kids for pain to let them know that they, there's 20 times more potential in them than they ever have thought they had or had allowed someone to bring out of them. We know that young people today have so much more potential than they've ever uh, thought existed and that we as mentors, coaches, or a Christian, you'd say discipler, if the person would sign up for that kind of growth, with that kind of focus, with that kind of tenacity, like to me, I, my thing was, I will die before I quit. And if you don't have that kind of a, a, a why inside you, and I was, you know, I, I was praying to Jesus. <laughs> I said, Jesus, this is a tough deal, you know. Yeah. Went 13 weeks at eight hours a day, six days a week. But the point was is that we know with kids that if we look them in the eye and we train them right, that there's a potential in them. But most people in general don't want to pay the price for growth. And the price is mental growth, emotional growth, physical growth, uh, financial growth, social growth. There's pain. Everything that we want in life lies outside of our comfortability. Boy, it's the truth. And all of us want to be comfortable. But in, in Revelation 2 and 3, to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer. And the point is that everybody wants to be an overcomer, but nobody wants the battle. Everybody wants to be victorious, but nobody wants to wants to fight through. So we say, if you can tolerate it in your life, you won't change it. Yeah. And you've got to become sick and tired of being sick and tired, as they say. You've got to come to a place that I'd rather, you know, whatever it is for me, I'd rather die than give these instructors the, the, the joy of watching me ring the bell and quit. You know, all this was happening within the first two years of my Christian formation. And so I didn't have Jesus as a best friend or I didn't have Jesus as a savior 
I had Jesus as a coach and he talked to me, he said, Romans 5, 3, suffering produces, at least it's supposed to produce perseverance and perseverance is supposed to produce character. But a lot of times suffering doesn't produce perseverance. It produces quitters and people quit because they don't want to persevere at being uncomfortable or miserable or in a difficult situation. They want the way out. The apostle Paul didn't do that for us. Prison, hardships, shipwrecks, beaten. Mm-hmm. Most Christians wouldn't sign up for that today. They'd say, I want to go to church, but what's if I ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life, do I have to go through that kind of pain and suffering? They wouldn't sign up. They want an easy savior and they want an easy call and they just make me nice or solve my problems or heal my marriage or fix my kid or help me pay my bills or get a better job. And if it doesn't go that way, then they, they back off their faith. Jesus said, you know, not my will, but thy will be done on the cross. When you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, it's not my will anymore. It's Lord, what do you want to do with my life? And what he probably would say every day is he wants you to repent. And sanctification comes when you repent and you repent and you repent and you repent and ask for forgiveness and try to not do those things over and over and over, but change into Christ-likeness. And manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. So if you want to be a real man, you'll be as much like Christ as possible. That means you'll kiss babies, you'll hang out with the widows and the orphans, you'll be merciful and think on social justice, and racial justice, and all the justice scriptures, New Testament plus the ones in, in Proverbs. But it also, there's a time to man up and to say, this thing stops now. And so justice and mercy, you know, they go together. And so lordship will, will come and have you do things that you don't want to do because he's trying to change us. And that's what I needed as a young man. And my instructors were trying to change me in a secular way, I, I've told many men's conferences this. I've said, it was a sad thing that God had to raise me in Pharaoh's army and not in the church. But the church didn't know what to do with me. The church was too nice to me, too merciful to me. Oh, it's okay. You know, try again. It's okay. But I, as a young man, needed someone to kick my tail and to look me in the eye and demand discipline and excellence and accountability. And so when I got out of the military, that's when the, I was putting a guy in a body bag. And the Lord said, you know, this guy didn't have to die. He made a mistake. And I want you to help people uh, stop making mistakes. I want you to go from putting band-aids and, and tourniquets and splints and on these people physically. And I want you to go work on them mentally so they don't have to make these mistakes. And so he told me to get out of the military and I ended up at ORU. For those who don't know what ORU is, that's Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went there because it was probably the straightest place I could find (laughs) (laughs) in the middle of nowhere for a West Coast beach surfer guy, snow skier guy, to continue (laughs) to go to the cross, go go to Oklahoma and just die and study theology. For that period of time, it was what I needed to go to a really straight Christian school that demanded certain things. And those things, when I got out of the military, didn't mean anything to me at all. I've I've been in a strict environment. Mm -hmm. So cutting your hair, wearing a coat and tie, or a a curfew, who cares? I was here for one reason only. That was to get this theology degree and then figure out what Jesus wanted me to do. What I would love to circle back with you about, Robert, is the statement you made about men needing to be challenged. I, I so see that. I have four sons and four daughters. And I totally agree. There's something in a man, I believe, 
that cries out for that discipline, for that challenge to come up higher, to be the leader. That's just a point that you made. I just want to reinforce it's it's built into us. There's something in us, I believe, as men that calls us up higher and even more so in Christ. Yeah, you you bet. And I think men are looking for that and they don't they go to the church or they go different places. You know, thank goodness for me, my coaches in high school, you know, were were men who really helped try to shape me and they had a lasting impact. But it says, you know, first Corinthians 1311, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, three things, talk, thought, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And there's something about recognizing that you have childish behavior. And whether somebody points it out, or your boss points it out, or your kids point it out, or your next door neighbor points it out, points out your, tra- your pastor points it out and says, hey, you have childish behavior. When are you going to grow up? When are you going to get together and become a man? You're born a male. But you have to choose to become a man. Just because, you know, you can get somebody pregnant doesn't make you a man. It takes a man to sire that child, just not get him pregnant. And so when are you going to take responsibility? And we always say maturity does not come with age. It comes with the acceptance of responsibility. And that's why some young men are more mature at 17 than other men have ever been at 70. Because the acceptance of, you're right, I have this issue, that issue, this issue, I do this, it's not right. Taking acceptance of your stuff and then saying, okay, Jesus, I give you permission to work on that. For me, I, I found mentors. And the only way that I made it through life is that along my journey, as I mentioned to you, this is my 50th year in Jesus. And along that way, I had to find men who modeled something that I wanted to be or to do. And then I pursued those men and wanted to get the mantle that was on Elijah on Elijah. I wanted that mantle. I wanted to raise kids. I wanted to, I wanted to be the kind of guy. I wanted to be the husband, the father. I wanted to, I wanted to do things like men that I really looked up to. So I searched them out and I found them and I wanted their anointing. I wanted, I wanted that thing that they had that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And my life of faith was, you know, where do I find these different kinds of people? Especially when you said before, men want to be challenged. And men want to grow and men want to be encouraged and they want to overcome failure. They want to become heroes. And the wife hopes they're going to be a hero and the kids are still believing their dad's going to be a hero. Oftentimes that's long gone. But when a man decides, I want to be a better man. You know, people say to me, I was asked in South Africa this last month, so what's the rest of your life? Doing this men's conference, what, they were doing a question and answer and they said, what's your, what's your thing now? And I said, I just want to be a better man. The goal the rest of my life is to be a better man and encourage and help as many as I can. Mm-hmm. Then they're done that with everything else. If I can just continue called sanctification, if I can just keep maturing and growing and be my age, the best at my age I can be, then I, I feel like I'm in the game. And young guys want that kind of stuff too. Yes. Please share your story about how you got into ORU. Oh gosh. I read this little book. I thought Somebody at a Christian bookstore gave me a book called God Smuggler, and it was the story of Brother Andrew working in the Soviet Union smuggling Bibles. And I read the book up in Alaska, and um, it lit me up so much that I I sent them a hundred dollars. Interesting story. Sent them a hundred bucks, and um, I got a letter back saying thank you so much for this hundred dollar gift, which is a big deal out of my my pay grade. I wrote them back and said, Hey, if ever um you need a guy like me, I'm special ops military. And they said, yeah, if you ever get out, let me know. Well, wouldn't you know it, one Christmas I 
went home to be with my mom and dad, my dad said to me, you want to go um, to our church men's breakfast? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went. And who was the speaker but the United States president of Open Doors Ministry, Brother Andrew? And I walked up to him and said, hey, I I read your book and I mailed you a hundred bucks and I got a letter back. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, let's talk. Wouldn't you know that his office was about 20 minutes away from the church and in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. And so he took me to his office and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. And that's a whole other story. But anyway, he would fly me to Denver and I'd go to a motorhome factory in Denver and the front was all the normal motorhomes and on the back were all the smuggling motorhomes being custom made for smuggling for brother Andrew. And then I would take motorhomes and I'd drive them to Houston, put them on a boat and then go to Amsterdam, pick them up in Amsterdam. And then I would drive them to our little hideout in Holland and meet my teammate. Then we'd begin to go smuggle and we'd smuggle back and forth. But I got the ORU because I had been all my grades from those first four times in colleges were just C's and D's Mm -hmm. UFs. And I wrote Biola and ORU and a bunch of schools, you know, we let me in. They said, no, I was on the Russian border one snowy winter night, and I was praying, and the Lord said, go to ORU. Go home and get go to ORU. I'll let you in. And I'd receive this note from ORU saying, you're not accepted. You're not accepted. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get your grades up, you know? Why, why apply with a 1.6 grade point average, you know? And so I uh, told my guys when I get done, you know, I got to get out of here. So we did our smuggling thing. And For those that don't know, smuggling means you were smuggling Bibles. Actually, we were smuggling Christian literature and Bibles in, and then we were smuggling out Helsinki Agreement Russian violations on the SS-22 missiles that they were putting nuclear warheads on the missiles in secret cities. No way. And the cities were not on the map. So there's 100,000 people, but there's no map. There's no city on the thing. It's a hidden city. And we would go get stuff from others, and we would smuggle the violations under the Reagan, under Carter and the Reagan, violent, get out to the West. So we'd smuggle stuff in and we'd smuggle stuff out. And that's how we busted the Russians on their, these muscle, missiles. But anyway, I got on this, got home. I got to Amsterdam and then I took a plane to New York City. Then I took a plane with my backpack. All that was my backpack from Alaska. I took my backpack there from New York and into Tulsa, took a bus from the airport to the out on 81st Street uh, or you. And then I walked in with my yellow Jansport backpack, a pair of clogs. In a corduroy coat. This was the seventies, you know. And <laughs> walked in and put my backpack. I was really strange looking, you know. I had longer hair, and anyway, I sat there and I said, "Hi, I, I'm here to go to school." And the lady <laughs> said, "Oh, that's really nice. You know, school's already started. Started yesterday." I said, "I know I'm late. I've been over in Europe. I just get here late." Anyway, she said, "What's your name?" Pulled up my stuff. She got my file. Then she said, "Mr. Ramsey, we have a student here." <laughs> so Chuck Ramsey comes out and he says to me, he sits down, and goes, "Hi, I'm Chuck." I said, "Hi, I'm Robert." What are you doing? I just got in from Europe. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been smuggling. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been smuggling. And so he opens up my file and said, did you get a letter from us? I said, yeah. He said, did you read it? And I said, well, yes, I did. He said, what did it say? And it said that I was not accepted to go to school here until I got my grades up. He said, that's great. So what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, you don't understand. I, the, the guy that you're reading there in that file is dead. He's been dead a long time. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. And I'm now the righteous of God in Christ. And I said, I was smuggling Bibles on the Russian border about six days ago and seven days ago. Anyway, the Lord said, come to where are you now that you'll accept me? And so as soon as I got done, I Amsterdam, New York, Tulsa bus. Here I am ready to go to school. And he just was stunned. He just stared at me. But those were, those were wild days of faith. Yeah. Our generation, you know, we, we had some pretty wild guys. 
And, you know, YOM started with a wild guy. And there's a lot, there's a lot of organizations that started with wild guys getting saved in those days. He just said, I don't, you don't fit. I said, yeah, I fit. Give me probation. Just give me 30 days. And if any of these 30 days, you know, I, I mess up my grades, kick me out. No, no harm, no foul. Just give me a shot. And he just said to this lady, do we have any beds? And this lady said, yeah, Old Tower's fourth floor. We have a guy from California who didn't show up. <laughs> I said, that's my room. And he used to look at me. I said, can I have it? He goes, that's your room. Somebody take him up there. <laughs> School's already on. And that's how I got to ORU. And then I ran for student body vice president within the first 45 days. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I got my, got my theology degree and, and did my pay, senior papers on Christian community. And then I, back then was the 1040 window days, uh, Muslims. And so I was then smuggling again in Eastern Europe because we were the smuggling guys brought into a local Bible study. Uh And so they welcomed us from the West, you know, and we were doing this all night, you know, six hour long Bible study, prayer meeting, preaching session, you know, for the the real zealots, the sweat rolling down the walls with so much humidity in the room, you know, (laughs) and because it was a secret meeting at the time I was studying German and Russian because I wanted to serve the underground church because I thought, if you're going to get it on, let's have fun. Let's have faith. Let's go for it. You know, I don't want to go to church. Mm -hmm. I want to do something like this. Anyway, he said, you're not called to come to the East. You're called to go to the West. And you're called to go because the East, there's no compromise. You're either a believer or you're not. In the West, is full of compromise. So go home and, and be a missionary to your country. And I just thought, that's a miserable prophecy. I mean, that's, that's that can't be God. Anyway, that thing worked on me. I went back to ORU and stuff. And pretty soon, I ended up in Nevada because I wanted to do a, a missions church plant. And the hardest cities on the West Coast would be Anchorage, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Reno, or Vegas. And Reno had a 1% church attendance population. So in Reno, Nevada, 1% of the people on Sunday were Mormons, Catholics, Protestants, Charismatics, Pentecostals, Christian science. 1% of the whole part, because you don't move to Nevada to go to church. You move to Nevada to you know, go wild and crawl back to Oklahoma. <laughs> so I did a church plant at the University of Nevada, Reno, with the athletes and became chaplain at the university for over 20 years and built a church at the campus that turned into a church church with mm-hmm. like real adults and stuff, yeah. not just students. And it got to about 3,000 folks. It became the largest church in the history of that region of Pentecostal charismatic background. So in 09, the market collapsed and everything in your life collapsed at that time as well, didn't it? Yeah. What happened? The recession of 07, 08, 09 was really hard on our city. Casinos closed, McDonald's closed, Denny's closed, car washes closed, and almost all the people in my church um, lost their jobs. And a number of us pastors, our churches pretty much evaporated. We tried to do a couple of church plant things, and it just didn't work out. And pretty soon, I had given my salary away to my associates prior to that because I was doing a building campaign. We owned 100 acres, and we just raised $5 million in the ground for utilities to get set up this 100 acres. So I was living off the money on the church building fund and gave my salary to others. Anyway, when the, when the church fell apart, evaporated, it's just one of those crescendo moments. We lost the church property after 20 years of working on it. We lost the church. It evaporated. And we lost the house. The house was a $2.5 million that we did an owner-build thing fourth house in the city of buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell. Anyway, mm-hmm. and it went on the mark for 700000 Wow. And then my wife said, we're done. I'm tired of being a 
pastor's wife. I'm tired of being a church planter's wife. I'm tired of living by faith. I'm tired of risk. I want nesting. I want stability, which she was deserving to have, desire to have. And she said, I'm tired of living with you. Everything's always by faith and let's push the envelope. And I'm tired of living like that. So I lost my marriage. Mm. It was just bizarre. I was, I was having, you know, judges and lawyers and DAs and people call me and say, Pastor, we're really sorry. We're, we're here going through a divorce. I said, it's okay. You know, we'll figure it out. You know, I'm ministering to people that aren't saved. They're calling me up saying they're sorry. Yeah. I had a TV program in town for 22 years every Sunday morning on Fox. And so for 22 years, I did a, a secular TV program called Leadership for Changing Times, where I would invite my Senator Harry Reid or others or my governors and stuff. We'd work on statewide leadership issues. And I would pick a topic, then ask these political leaders to come in and talk about solutions, Republican, Democrat, and Greens, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was in the town. I wanted to be doing missions in my city, and I wanted to be involved in the evolving growth of our city. At that same time, my mom died. And I didn't know what to do. I just was thinking, what am I going to do? My mom died at 91. My dad was 92. And I called my dad. He said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. I'm, I don't know what to do. And he said, come home and take care of me. And so at 92, I moved home. And I stayed with my dad till he died at 101. And where was home, Robert? Home was Laguna Beach, California. Okay. And so I learned more about elder care in those 10 years than you could ever imagine. But I, I just dropped off the radar. I was defeated. I was discouraged. I was humbled. I was embarrassed. I was uh, broken. And I mentioned to you that I, I didn't open up my Bible when I got home for the first five years. Five years. Yeah. I just, I, I, I never knew that my years between 40 and 50 in Jesus would be my toughest years. I thought all my tough years were probably, you know, the first 20, but it's a long walk. Mm -hmm. And Life has a way of getting your attention, and there's something about listening to somebody with a limp, as we would say, <laughs> read the Bible, who sounds different than a new believer reading the same scripture. That's so true. Because there's so much water under the bridge when you read, suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and and all the scriptures. And so I was mad. I was disappointed. I had traveled for for 15 years with Dr. Edward Lewis Cole around the world doing men's events. And uh, we'd done, you know, everything from Russia to China to Australia to Indonesia to Argentina. We'd done men's events around the world. And here I was, a guy with a TV program telling people how to live, and now I'm broken. Mm-hmm. My heart began to open up a little bit, you know, the sixth or seventh year to read Proverbs and just think about stuff. But it was just hard for me to read the scriptures about God's faithfulness and feeling like um, he wasn't that faithful. And so I made a deal, sort of like, Jesus, you and I are buddies. I like you. I appreciate you saving me. I try to be more like Christ every day. What would Jesus do? You know, I'll do all those things. But God, I don't know if I want to work for you ever again. I just don't know if I want to do this again. I did everything I knew how to do right, and it blew up my face. And I I was probably a contributing actor. Not a probably. I was a contributing actor. I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. But I gave him my best shot, you know. <laughs> doing a pastor, staying faithful to my wife, lordship, and and just have this experience. Guys begin to call me, though, after a while, and they begin to say, uh, you live? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, why? They go, we haven't seen you in five, six, seven, eight years. And I'd say, yeah, I'm here. I'm alive. What's God saying to you? Nothing. How is, how is your prayer life? I don't have one. And they'd say, 
pastor and I'd say, I'm staying out of problems. I'm just surfing a lot and I'm taking care of my dad (laughs) (laughs) and going to church, taking him to church. As I began to get out though, I to feel the heart of the Lord again for people. And I began to volunteer helping kids and began to volunteer work with seniors like I was my dad. And so I did that as you know, for a while, my heart got softened. As you transitioned out of this, you were in the process of really kind of reinventing yourself, weren't you? Making a new commitment to living the rest of your life because of something your dad told you. Yeah, my dad said to me when he was 95, they had retired him out at 60. So the county retired him at 60 years old and said, you're done. Go play golf. Here's your watch. Go die with your generation. You're out of the game. And he said to me, if I'd known that I was going to live 35 years past retirement, I would have started another career. And he says, I'm going to be dead here one of these days. What are you going to do after I'm dead? And I said, I don't know, Dad. He said, well, you need to reinvent yourself. Because when you get to be 60 and older, people stop talking to you. And um, you want to stay relevant as long as you can. So what are you going to do to stay relevant? You need to get a business plan from 60 to 90. And that's what am I going to do and who am I going to be when I'm dead? when you're still here from 60 to 90. And so I, I began to think, and I even prayed. I said, you know, how am I going to make a comeback or what do I want to do? And I had been, since I'd done 11 Ironman triathlons prior to that time, I get called a lot to coach or to talk or speak on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I thought if I'm going to come back, I think I'd like to come back as a health and wellness expert. And I'd like to work with seniors. You choose how you age. And then I'd, 30 to 40 year olds and then kids. I'd like to, I'd like to talk to kids, but I need a platform. And so I'm going to have to earn a platform. So I'm, I'm going to have to do some research and then do a strategy of how can I get back in the national spotlight. And so I decided to do five events, four events. Um, at 66 years old, I was told don't show up because you're too old. And so trained for three years and blew out my shoulder on one, blew out my other shoulder on another. Huh. <laughs> but I, got through my surgeries and got through my stuff. And I, I, I was interviewed at Spartan games by the founder, Joe DeSena, who has a TV show on now called no retreat right by shark tank. Anyway, Joe declared at Dodger stadium after these five events that I was the fittest and mentally toughest 66 year old in the world, which wasn't true, but it was really nice that he thought so (laughs) (laughs) having Spartan games make a pronouncement like that. And what that did was it it allowed me then to go back in marketplace ministry and to work with men. And that's why now I train Navy SEAL candidates and Air Force Special Warfare candidates. And I I do conferences and I do men's retreats and and I work with executives, type A's, you know, C-suite guys and talk about what it's going to take to stay in the game for the long run. And then how are you going to get through the pain or the failures in your life. Mm -hmm. And I share my story of my pain and my failure and how we have a choice that we live by our choices. And if you don't make right choices, you'll have bad results. (laughs) And so I speak now and teach a lot, not as a pastor, even though they call me pastor, come and speak to non-Christians about getting a life and enriching their life and if they say weren't you a pastor or something i say yeah why and they say we don't act like one or talk like one i say what do they what do they talk like or act like (laughs) not like you (laughs) and i go okay what's your issue you know they drink a beer and then they tell me 
about their addictions and they tell me about their this or their that or marriage. And so I have a, a ministry now to the non-saved guys. I have a ministry now to military. And then I have, I still do church work when I'm asked to come speak and do men's stuff or Sunday mornings and things. So it's, it's come full circle. I would never have believed that it could have. I don't wish that kind of pain on any pastor. And yet pastors are falling out, you know, time and time and time again. They're, they're just, there's so many pastors quitting today, but there's also so many men today that are just struggling. And my passion and heart is for helping and inspiring and encouraging guys to get up and you can do it again. You know, mm. Babe Ruth was known for two things. Babe Ruth was known for 714 home runs, right? But the strikeout leader that year also was Babe Ruth. And then when Hank Aaron got the baseball title, Hank Aaron had the most home runs. But guess who was the strikeout champion that same year? It was Hank Aaron. And I had an old guy say to me, I had a prophet by the name of Dick Mills. He'd come by once a year and read my mail. And I'd feel so discouraged because I'd hear from God, I thought, and then nothing would ever work. <laughs> when I was doing the church plant, I'd say, I just feel like quitting. And he said, hey, Robert, the only way you quit is to get out of the batter's box. He said, you know, they'll pay you millions if you just hit three out of 10. Yeah. If you just yeah. hit three out of 10, hit 300, you'll be immortal. And so that's seven times you strike out before you hit three or get, you know, you get out. Just, just don't stop swinging the bat. Stay in the box and swing the bat. And so I've chosen to get back in and swing the bat. Yeah. And sometimes I do good and sometimes I don't do good. But you're really out of the game when you get out of the box and just drop the bat. And I, I have friends that encourage me, hey, Robert, you know, you're swinging the bat again. And I'm swinging the bat again. And I, it's not, you know, you hear the, the trite term, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. But it's it's that same thing. I, I want to finish strong. I'm 50 years into this thing. I had no idea walking with Jesus. People say to me all the time, you know, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Is it jumping out of 100 airplanes or is it, you know, putting guys in body bags or is it, you know, 12 Ironmans or that Navy SEAL, whatever it is, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? And I tell usually the audience, I say, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is to make Jesus the Lord of my life and to walk with him every day where he calls me on my stuff and he tells me to repent and he checks my attitude and he looks at my motives and I give him permission to bust me about kids, family, money, you know, the homeless lady on the street. Did I give her the five bucks or not? Hmm. You know, the hardest thing I've ever done is just to let him be in control of of speaking to my conscience and saying, would I do that? Is that how you want to represent me? And so I'm glad I'm back in the game. And it's a hard game, but it's an interesting long-term game. Your story is phenomenal. I know that we've only touched on a small portion of it. I want to ask this as we finish up here, Robert. What is one of the most frequent questions that you tend to address? Well, if I'm hanging with men, it's how do you stay passionate? How do you stay how do you stay so focused and so passionate? And I say, I've asked God to break my heart with the things that break his heart. And I have asked God to help me be an agent of change and healing. And so I have a conscience continually speaks to me and says, that's not right. That should be fixed. That person needs help. Who's going to help them? And I don't know that's a blessing or a curse, but from the homeless people on the street, you know, law enforcement to business guys to business ladies, you know, it's just whoever I see things more than I want to see. And I feel things more than I want to feel. And the Lord says to me, you know, what are you going to do? I don't want an excuse. What are you going to do? Excuses are a dime a dozen. 
And so my passion for helping, and that means sharing the gospel and giving hope. That's what I'm asked, how I stay in the game. What's the other question I probably asked? I was speaking in South Africa this last month, and a little girl came up to me because I was, I was adopted as a kid, and I was adopted as a disabled child and had bad feet, and I didn't learn to run till I was nine. And then my mom died with lupus in fifth grade, sixth grade. Then she, they resuscitated her. And then I got sexually abused twice by the time I was in seventh grade and eighth grade. And this little girl walked up to me and she was in uh, eighth grade. And she said, sir, you've dealt with pain. My father has just died. I can't seem to get over it. It just hurts so bad. Can you tell me what I can do to get through the pain in my life? And I've just spoken to 700 high school kids. And she walks up and stands in line and asks me this little question, like a sweet little girl. And I just said, I can help you. And I prayed with her. And, and I asked Jesus to take the pain out of her heart, like he took the pain out of my heart. And she began to cry. And at the end, she just hugged me. She just thanked me. She said, thank you. I said, we're done? She goes, we're done. I got it. <laughs> I said, all right, later. Have fun. Go to lunch. You know? <laughs> That's great. So that pain, how do you get through pain? How can people find out more about you? My website is roberthamiltonowens.com. Uh, and people write me or call me all the time. My phone number is 949-542-9600. And my email is my name, Robert Owens, but it has two S's, Robert Owens, double S at yahoo.com. And you can call me or you can text me or write me and I'll get in contact with you. That's wonderful. As we finish up, I'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please. Lord, there are so many people listening who are struggling mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, relationally. They're struggling. And I pray today, Lord, that somehow you would break in to their world, their, their mental world, and say to them, I am bigger than their problem. Jesus is bigger than your problem. And he would say to you, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I've come to break the poverty off of your life and every other's life. And I want you to succeed. And I want you to make it. And I want you healed. And I pray, Jesus, that you would say those words. And those words would drop from their head down into their heart. And they would find hope today. And they would then begin to plant new seed. Meaning, if they don't like the harvest that's coming out of the ground in their life, that they would plant new seed and get a new harvest. I ask, Lord, that they would break the negativity and the poor self-worth and the, the self-sabotaging talk in their life, and they would begin to believe the scriptures. Jesus says, you can do this. I'm for you, not against you. All things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Let me help you, and let me walk you through your situation the same way, Jesus, you walked me through mine. And I ask for a blessing and encouragement today. And that they would, they would find friends that would encourage them and believe with them that something good can happen to them this week, today, tomorrow, this month. And I pray that there would be courage and there would be hope today in the listener. And um, that they would begin to praise you even now by faith, even though things haven't physically changed. But they would begin to praise you right now that they're going to make it. And if they listen to Jesus and read their word and study the word, you'll lead them and guide them into new valleys of fruit in their life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Robert. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make 
is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.